Welcome to Senior Rx Radio, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Senior Rx Radio is brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, the ASCP. ASCP is devoted to optimal medication management and improved health care outcomes for older adults. Learn more at our website, ASCP.com. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio, sponsored by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. Today, we're going to discuss transitions of care and how data can be used to improve this process. Now, before you get concerned, we're going to do this kind of deep dive and get lost in a big data discussion that doesn't impact your practice. Let's consider this. How do you be the most impactful in the work you do? So to me, that looks like we have to consider how we allocate our best resource. That's your geriatric pharmacy expertise. You could be a great clinician, but if you want to produce the best work, you need to maximize your tools. That may mean the software you use, the protocols you have in place, the checklists you create if you're an Atul Gwande fan like I am, and it may should mean probably using predictive analytics from data to narrow down who may be at biggest risk for an adverse event. So if you talk to a person or if you are a person that tends to shy away from the quote-unquote big data discussions, you know, just because you think you have to have a PhD in IT to talk about this or this topic around data, I invite you to think a little bit narrow on that. The behind the scenes piece is great for the IT types to figure out and employ algorithms and coding, but it's us as direct patient care providers. We can take this information when delivered to us in usable format to really enhance the work that we do. And that's a discussion we're going to have today. So I'm really excited to have Stephen Littlehale join us today. Stephen is Point Rights Executive Vice President, Chief Clinical Officer. He has more than 25 years experience as a long-term care professional, beginning as a nurse assistant assistant and leading to his work as an advanced nurse practice nurse educator researcher and consultant he's board certified specialist in gerontology and a nationally known lecturer consultant with numerous publications he holds a bachelor's of science from the university of vermont and a master's of science from georgetown university wonderful news on the acp side he is going to be an upcoming speaker at the acp forum that's being held May 17th and 18th in Arlington, Virginia. Check out ASCP.com for more information. So, Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. So, Stephen, I'd like to get started about how did you get involved in senior care? I think that's really important to, to talk about how we are passionate about this work. And obviously, 25 years of experience in, in long-term care. You know, I, I'm excited to kind of hear about you, how you got to be where you're at today. Sure, sure. And um, I'm a very mission-driven person. Um, I really committed to uh, working in elder care, uh, really committed to reforming elder care. Um, Back when I was in my late teens, actually, um, I had the unbelievable good fortune of having uh, not only four grandparents close by, some actually living with me, but two great-grandmothers and they all had a role in my upbringing. Um, when I decided in high school as a junior that I wanted to uh, study nursing and go to school for nursing, um, I really was able to focus a lot of my education on geriatrics and, and elder care. Uh, and my first experience in a long-term care setting, um, it really didn't line up with the ideals that I had um, the the elders that were living there for their end of life were really not regarded in the same way that I frankly regarded my grandparents and great grandmothers. 
Um, and I, I set on a course to reform that, to change that, uh, to make a difference. Um, it is, it has been a very interesting journey, Justin. Um, it, it had me going to graduate school, uh, again for geriatrics and gerontology, uh, and working as a clinical nurse specialist with, with some of the finest organizations in the United States. Um, and after a decade and a half of that, that transitioned to more in academic and research post, um, and then ultimately ended up at Point Right when it was just a startup uh, a little over 20 years ago. So, see, that's interesting. What made you go from a direct care provider to working at a place like Point Right, where you kind of have a larger impact on people, I would assume, but what was that transition like? Well, it's it's interesting because you uh, maybe unknowingly or maybe knowingly just answered the question. Um, I, I decided I really had some incredible encounters with with people and and really felt I, I helped these elders and their families, and along the way um, helped nurses and physicians and pharmacists and administrators really be better at what they were doing. Um, and, and as well, learning from them, of course. Um, but at Point Right, because we, we are a data analytics company, but although that sounds somewhat nebulous, what we're able to do is really touch a- absolutely millions of people over the course of time that I've been here at Point Right. Millions of elders have um, had better care rendered as a result of encounters with Point Right. Um, clinicians are better clinicians, um, not because they're they're reading these very dense analytic reports that a analytics company can produce, but what we're actually providing is extremely focused clinical interventions, clinical insights that sometimes escape the clinician when they're dealing with the realities of a very busy environment. You know, so for example we're able to very quickly work into someone's usual workflow. Um, So the MDS coordinator or the director of nursing or the physician or the pharmacist who are doing rounds in the building are able to use our solutions to identify quickly who are the people at greatest risk for end of life or rehospitalization or, or developing a pressure ulcer. Um, how is the facility doing with managing pain um, for, is, is another example. How do we manage pain in our cognitively impaired population? How are we doing? And again, it's not a lofty, dense report. Instead, it's a simple list. Here are the residents you want to focus in on or a red dot next to someone's name and that, that means something. Um, so I feel like I was able to maintain my vision of reforming elder care through my entire career and know that I'm just able to be more potent as a clinician because I'm working at an analytics company. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think a lot of, you know, I think a lot of people are moving in that direction being, you know, maybe direct care providers and then getting an opportunity to have their work impact, you know, on a larger scale, much like you are. So I think that's wonderful. I'm curious. So I always like to ask people who've been in, in the industry for a long time, um, you know, 25 years like yourself, where do you think we're at right now? What's kind of the current state of the senior care, post-acute care industry? And where do you think we have for opportunities and challenges? 
Oh, that, that's, it's a great question because really for the majority of my career, one way to ensure you would not be invited to a cocktail party was to tell someone you worked in long-term care or you work with elderly or you dealt with end-of-life issues. Um, people, our society generally is not interested in that. It makes people uncomfortable. They don't want to think of their own mortality. They don't want to think of their mother's or their grandmother's mortality. Uh, and so anything to do with elder care has always been frowned upon. In our healthcare environment, that kind of that, that really has played out and continues to play out. When you think of how other um, sectors of healthcare, acute care or community care, how they view nursing homes, long-term care, skilled nursing facilities, often it's with disdain. Often it's it's perceived to be a place where clinicians would go if they couldn't make it in acute care. Um, and, and that's just so completely wrong. So along came healthcare reform, and, and that has been a fascinating thing, is because with healthcare reform, what began to get baked into our healthcare environment was a need, a need to know what goes on and understand post-acute care. And a lot of that, was, frankly, was because it was financially driven. And you know, my feeling is, is that's fine, as long as we're now starting to consider post-acute care and, and caring about what goes on in post-acute care and don't just consider it a big black hole. If, if the motivation was financial, so be it. Um, a, a huge price tag was put on the cost of rehospitalization, and everyone started pointing to that. And they saw the variance that existed within the post-acute care environment, within the skilled nursing facility environment and said, why does one nursing home achieve a better outcome than another nursing home? Or why does care cost so much more in one segment of post-acute care versus another? And it was through that, that uh, through healthcare reform, requiring that people were be accountable for that entire stay, did people start looking at that big black hole and, and saying, I need to understand that more. I, I can no longer be successful if that remains a big, a big black hole. I need to get into it, understand the data, the drivers, the metrics, um, the experience that a, a member or a patient or a resident has um, when they enter that post-acute care space. Um, so I feel like uh, over the last um, five plus years, there's been a lot more attention um, I think the, the, as a result, post-acute care is sort of coming into its own. Um, and that's my sense of where things have been and where they are today. When I think about the future, um, I actually, Justin, was that part of the question? Did you want me to talk about future yes. or leave like, yeah, it there? I, no, I'd love to, because I think that's really the, you know, I think that's where it's great where we're at right now, but then... I think you're right. I think it's really insightful to think that, you know, maybe it was payment reform that really enhanced the role of post-acute care providers. And I don't know if I've ever heard it um, brought like that before. So I think that's really insightful. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious. So what does the next sort of five to 10 years look like? And how do we prepare to be further enhanced? Sure. Well, it was, um, it was payment reform, um, partially payment reform um, that got us there. But it's also... It's regulatory reform. It's, it's a lot of uh, ACA put in place 
many uh, carrots and sticks. Um, and they called him value-based purchasing, or they called him rehospital readmission penalty, whatever they call it. I think of it as a series of carrots and sticks. And sometimes the carrot truly is a carrot, and you have a financial incentive for managing your patient um, better once uh, during their entire stay, during their entire spell of illness. Um, your accountability is rewarded financially. And sometimes it's a stick. You, you pay a fine, you pay a penalty if you don't manage that properly. So, and sometimes, you know, someone, the government will claim it is actually a, a carrot when in fact it's really a, a carrot in disguise as a, a, of a stick or a stick in disguise of a carrot. But it's not really a financial enhancement. It's more of a penalty. And there's lots of those programs in place. Every sector of healthcare now has a carrot and a stick. And it's all trying to get motivated around safe uh, transitions of care, moving people to lower care settings, uh, and not having unnecessary rehospitalizations or readmissions. Um, so in terms of the future, what... It's hard for me to see how the model, the future model works. And, I mean, how today's model works in the future. Uh, I don't think it's viable at all. This idea that in today's nursing homes, we commingle post-acute patients with long-stay patients, it just doesn't make sense. Um, it, it, it ha I understand why it exists today, um, but that is inappropriate and unnecessary moving forward. So many people will come to a nursing home because they're at end of life. They're frail, they're elder, there's not enough support in the community to keep them at home. Now that's changing. There's more support in the community now, but still it's a very complicated situation. There's no way we'll be able to care for all of our frail elders for one reason or another in the community. They need a safe place to go that will meet their needs and help them have a respectful end of life, um, free of pain, free of unnecessary uh, debility, uh, et cetera. Then there's another population that goes into the skilled nursing facility, the nursing home, and those are folks that are there for a short-term short rehab and then they're gonna go home. Or they're gonna go to an assisted living, which is their home, but they're going to a lesser care setting. And those folks are very different than that first group that I described. But today we have them living under the same roof. And there are some people who will go into hospital and think they're going home, but actually their event that landed them in the hospital was really the tipping point and they can no longer live in the community and they'll transition to a long stay patient. Um, but still, it's hard to justify that we commingle these this population under one roof. I think it's costly. I don't think it's very efficient, and I don't think it's actually respectful in many ways to the people we're rendering care to. Um, so I think the future is going to uh, really change that. I don't think there'll be a thing such as a skilled nursing facility um, where both types of people live. Um, I think there's going to be much less emphasis on bricks and mortar um, and post-acute care will be um, almost virtual, uh, that 
a nursing home's accountability would extend into the private home um, and a person can either transition seamlessly um, or age in place uh, and will be less obsessed on bricks and mortar and structure. I mean, I think that's really interesting because I think if we look at the rules that are in place and um, not only the rules, really it's the financials of it as well, is everything seems to be slanted towards shorter stays, um, higher quality when you're there, but we're taking higher acuity patients and then trying to get them home as quick as possible because that seems to be how the rules and the finances are set up. So mm-hmm. one of the things that we have to focus on or we should be focusing on is this idea around transitions of care and rehospitalizations. Mm-hmm. Why is that so important and who exactly is it important to? Um, it's so important because when you think, let's first talk about the patient or the resident or you know, God forbid we call them a person. If you look at that person's experience at transition of care, a, a, a botched transition of care really has a, a very significant consequence to them. Um, it can cause them harm. Um, it can not only just land them back in the hospital, but it can, it can really bring with that a whole host of additional problems if care transitions aren't, aren't managed well. Um, so it's not, it's not just about location one to another. It's, it's about medications. It's about the person's strengths and weaknesses and um, even things like their, their, their pain management, their skin integrity. Um, how do they communicate their needs? Um, by not managing the care transition properly, all of those things are, are, are put at risk. And the consequence, unfortunately, is so significant. Then from a financial perspective, if, we, if we're looking at that and we put the person aside, um, it's super costly. I mean, the, if you look at estimates, it's, uh, I've, I've seen everything from $10,000 to $20,000 to the system when a person is um, readmitted after a hospitalization, a time in post-acute care, and then back to the hospital. Um, so the financial consequences is quite significant, you know, and um, that, that's a consideration as well. Have you seen a lot of interactions change between acute and post-acute care providers based on sort of this care and stick issue that, that comes around sort of these penalties? Definitely, definitely have. Um, I think initially the first wave of intervention we saw um, from hospitals or, or ACOs or even commercial payers was to look downstream at the post-acute providers and say, you know, you're a nursing home, I'm a hospital, I'm smart, you're less than I am in terms of smart, and therefore you'll do what I tell you, and this is what the length of stay is, and the patient's coming in an hour. Um, and I'm being a little dramatic, but actually listeners on this call will be able to add to that chorus of, uh, of scenario where this pretty much is what happened. And sort of the kind of managing the hospital or the ACO managing the post-acute experience from their perspective failed. They didn't see the returns that they wanted to. Um, and so there's been a whole additional newer wave where they're saying, you know what, a partnership, a collaboration, let's build that. 
let's let's build trust let's use data that is transparent and metrics that are transparent that everyone can understand and let's make them actionable so that a both a a a, a physician or a nurse in the nursing home or the hospital would see this information and say oh i understand it i see it and i can actually use it to improve care so actionable data and metrics transparency having the information shared at the same time in the same manner that has been the newer wave of um, in the last couple of years that is really showing unbelievable success um, in reducing the numbers of rehospitalization reducing the cost of care increasing satisfaction for the member or the patient or the resident um, and, and just in the same strategy I'm seeing now show up around the United States between SNFs in home health. So it, it's just fascinating. It's, it's what, what we're learning with our upstream partners, we're able to apply it to our downstream partners. So we create these consortiums where, again, we're sharing resident level information aggregated to a facility level. It's actionable. It's transparent. It's, it's, recognized by third parties. So you have that, um, for example, a national quality forum endorsement of the metrics that you're using. And, and you're not having conversations about, well, how do you measure rehospitalization? Well, here's how I do it. How do you do it? And, you know, you debate over who's right for a year. Um, you have that third party endorsement. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I was in a meeting actually just last week with well, between a group of community um, skilled nursing partners in the hospital. And it was really interesting to see the dynamics that play out in a meeting like that on a very local and granular level because, you know, it's not just the hospital saying you need to do X, Y, and Z. You know, there was instances in that meeting where the hospital's like, hey, we can do this better too. Um, and I think that's been a dynamic shift in what it's looked like. So I think that's interesting. Why do you think it's important pharmacies involved with transitions of care? Oh, it's such a, it's such a great question. Um, pharmacy and pharmacists who are helping nursing homes, frankly, those nursing homes are doing better. Um, being from an analytics company, of course, we study this. And we, we looked at um, uh, basically every nursing facility in the United States. So we're talking greater than 15,000 nursing facilities. And we looked at their staffing patterns. Who were they employing and how much of this and how much of that? And we saw a, a clear distinction with those folks that were working with pharmacists that they were, those nursing facilities were seeing things like better immunization rates than other skilled nursing facilities. Um, they, they saw uh, reductions in pressure ulcers at a greater rate than other facilities, the management of pain um, at, a, at a better rate than other facilities. Um, so, so the data is there. Those are just three examples. The, the data is there. If, if you have a, a pharmacist and pharmacy involved in the day-to-day -day operations from the resident level, um, but all the, all the way up to sort of the facility aggregate consultative approach, it really makes a difference. Um, and when you think specifically about care transitions, so many times you'll see these patterns where certain cohorts of patients will go back to hospital within one or two days. And 
sure enough, it's almost always related to changes in medications, uh, changes in diet. Um, so even like if you look at the, the, the diabetes population, a facilities, usually you see this pattern emerge. There's a, there's a subgroup of people with diabetes who return to hospital within day one or day two or day three. And that is completely related to diet changes and insulin changes and, and having that transition poorly managed. And then there'll be a, another part of that diabetic population that will be, um, you know, two weeks out that they will bounce back to the hospital. And you wonder about that group. And it's like, well, they've, they've healed, they've, their needs have changed, their metabolic needs have changed. Um, they might be more stable. And so what was good a couple of weeks ago is not longer, is no longer meaningful today. Um, and again, in both of those instances, the pharmacist really plays a very important role. Um, and, and those are just a couple of uh, examples. There's, there's plenty more um, examples of even on the other side, the transition between SNF and home health. Um, you, can, you can use the minimum data set to identify people who have, for example, cognitive issues, um, be it mild or moderate or severe, and be able to anticipate their likely success with medication management. Um, and, and knowing that that, is a, that, that that is a potential problem on the horizon, you can really involve your pharmacist in early to think about what are some strategies that we can put in place with medication dispensary um, and, and, and rethinking medication re regime for that person um, and doing some training. Um, there, there's no reason a, a pharmacist along with an occupational therapist, for example, can't be working with a resident as they're getting close to discharge to um, help them manage that very important process uh, of medication delivery. I couldn't agree more. I always look to, there's an OIG report that talks about 22% of skilled nursing patients have an adverse event during their stay. And with those, 37% related to medication. So I think there's no, you know, even though there's not specifically a medication quality metric in long-term care on medications, I look at things like residents who made improvements in function, um, residents who are rehospitalized, um, those who are successfully discharged community, all those things have a slice of medications involved with them as well that I think if we do a good job as long-term care clinicians and pharmacy providers that you know, those are things that people have financial stake in that we could help mm -hmm. improve. And, and then really outside of the financial stake, of course, is just overall patient care can be enhanced by having the pharmacist available. So I think those are great things. Do you see the need to kind of focus on extending beyond the walls of the long-term care facility? And do you think the changes like with Impact Act and trying to tie post-acute care measures and providers together will be important for practice development for someone, say, community or home health care, or maybe they focus on assisted living and residential care facilities? Right. Um, it, it's, it's healthcare reform. ACA is all about taking down the walls. Um, and so when I was describing the future as, as being outside of the, the bricks and mortar and not being obsessed with bricks and mortar, that's, that's also for caregivers as well. We have to think about the patient or, or the person or the resident in terms of the rest of their lives, frankly, 
and what are their needs and how those needs extend to the next setting and how you're going to be able to follow up and, and manage and support that next setting. Um, you mentioned Impact Act, and, and that's a great example of um, not only in those Impact Act measures are all is all of post-acute care getting on the same page with how we're evaluating the effectiveness of your care. So we all start talking about um, skin issues the same way or pain management the same way, et cetera, um, across all of the, the post-acute silos, home health, post-acute care, ERFs, for example, um, home health, skilled nursing facilities, ERFs. Um, there are measures that are specifically looking at how well you manage that person after you discharge them. So there's one measure that um, exists for nursing homes, and there's a complementary measure that exists for home health, where it says after you discharge them, you're still on the hook. You know, you're still on the hook for 30 days or 60 days in the case of home health. Um, what are you doing about that? You know, their person is no longer in the bed, is no longer um, inside your building, but yet you're still accountable. And although there isn't a financial penalty associated yet with the measures related to Impact Act, um, they're going to be publicly reported. And it's a reputational um, significance for you. Uh, and there may be penalties associated with that later on. Um, but, but you're absolutely right, Justin. You, you have to be thinking about that person. That person is with you for a period of time, but is really with you much longer. Um, and these partnerships need to exist between every setting that resides within the post-acute space and then also with the acute care where you're receiving that uh, patient from. I mean, I think those things are great too because, you know, while it's maybe difficult now, I think there's a lot of tools out there to help us, um, you know, so our care doesn't stop. It becomes sort of a warm handoff and, and really, frankly, beyond a warm handoff, it's going to be how do I help my downstream provider and making sure that they understand everything that we did so we can continue to have that patient reach those goals. So mm -hmm. how, does, how does Point Right help us with that? You know, what's, who's this product geared towards? Yeah, so our, our solutions are, are, are geared to various stakeholders uh, within post-acute care, um, which, is a, which is a really broad statement for me to be making. So traditionally, let me, let me be more specific. Traditionally, and still the majority of our clients are skilled nursing facilities. Um, and that probably is representing about 70% of our population right now. And what we're doing is we're, we're harvesting their clinical data, their MDS data. We're harvesting regulatory data, financial data, um, staffing information, complaint files, all different kinds of information about the facilities. And we're able to, uh, again, help with quality improvement, help them with com meeting compliance standards, financial integrity, um, getting very specific to the patient level, the person level, but also being able to comment on the facility or the system that they're a part of. Um, so we're able to put their performance in context to what's going on with 
other facilities like them in the neighborhood, other facilities like them in the state or, or the country. Um, but what we've realized through the years is that other, there's other stakeholders about what happens in post-acute care. We're, we've sort of been talking about that throughout this interview. Um, hospitals are now on the hook for what happens in post-acute care. Um, payers always have been on the hook to what happens in post-acute care. ACOs, if, if someone is a, a bundler, they are, they are responsible potentially for what's happening in post-acute care. Um, so th there's different types of people that are very interested in what's happening. And that represents, you know, the other 30% of, of the people we serve. We're either giving them visibility into what's happening in the nursing home for their members or, or their patients. Um, we're helping them build their network, um, their post-acute network and manage their network um, w through the use of predictive analytics. We're helping them anticipate what's coming um, in the future and how to do some course correction with um, what they're thinking about around their post-acute network in uh, making sure that their post-acute network is is able to meet the needs of the types of patients that they're discharging um, or, or that stop some of the penalties that they're receiving. If the hospital is is readmitting a certain type of patient, then that's a great opportunity to look at your post-acute network to make sure you have centers of excellence represented in your post-acute network to help you with your own pain points. Well, I think that's really interesting because I think as sort of vendors to long-term care facilities, you know, I think a lot of people have, you know, this need to want to service those um, metrics as well. So be it, you know, obviously pharmacists we're talking about today, but dietitians, um, all the different parts of therapy, whether it's respiratory, PTOT, ST, you know, you know, every vendor has kind of want to be on board with these metrics as well. And facilities are going to want to find partners who are all able to drive towards these outcome goals that we're talking mm -hmm. about. So I mm -hmm. think that's, I think that's a great thing to have. And, and part of that team is you have to look beyond sort of, you know, X and Y are involved in payment, but it's really everybody around the outside of it as well. Right. Um, right. Exactly. How does a consultant pharmacist or long-term care pharmacy provider use the PointRight platform to provide, you know, an enhanced service to a long-term care facility? Sure. Um, one of our, I'll, I'll be very specific. One of our tools um, is called Radar. And um, Radar is pretty cool. What, it, what it's going to do is, uh, again, with a click of the button, identify every um, patient or resident that is in this skilled nursing facility. Um, and there are going to be about seven descriptive analytics um, uh, about those patients. Uh, and there's going to be about five predictive analytics um, also in that radar tool. Um, so the predictive analytics are, are such things as who's likely to develop a pressure ulcer, who's likely to expire within six months, who's likely to be rehospitalized, who's likely to fall, um, who is likely to bounce back to the hospital if they were discharged within the next week. Um, and, and a pharmacist can, can sit with the care team and 
call uh, call sort those those columns those those metrics I just described and identify who are the high risk residents for those particular outcomes and really drill into it and see what is the role of um, pharmacy in preventing that pressure ulcer um, in managing that uncontrolled pain of, of managing that likely return to the hospital. Um, so in addition to identifying those residents very quickly and efficiently, it'll tell you why. And oftentimes it's something where a pharmacist could really impact and, and have a difference. Um, so that's just one example. Um, they can also look at rehospitalization analytics and immediately identify which cohort the facility is doing really well with. And, and then, of course, the opposite, which they're really struggling. And then why? Why are we having a problem with people with heart disease? Um, wh what can we do to improve that? So they can really uh, use those tools to identify um, and clearly see where they insert into that role. Oh, I think that's a fantastic thing because I, I think there's a lot that we could provide, you know, like you mentioned falls, for example, you know, if somebody's at risk for falls, can that pharmacist drill down to that patient, look at their medications who might put them at further risk and be able to make mm -hmm. some recommendations around that. I think that's a fantastic opportunity for pharmacists. Right. I, I completely agree. So Stephen, if somebody wants to find out more, is pointright.com the best place to start? I think so. Pointright.com will give you um, some information um, about who we are and what we do. And uh, probably more importantly, with uh, on the site, pointright.com, there will be appropriate links to uh, either give you more information right there or contact someone at the company. Great. And I, and I would also put a little plug in there too. There's some great white papers on there as well. Um, you know, we discussed rehospitalizations today. And I know you guys have a great white paper around that particular issue. And I think it's great for pharmacists to be able to dive into those kind of topics and, and be really valuable resources to their, the facilities they're providing care to. Thank you. Absolutely. So, Stephen, looking forward to May 17th and 18th. We're going to be in Arlington for um, ASCP Forum. So, you're excited to hear about more, I'm sure, um, about what pharmacy does. And I'm sure all of us on this um, interview today and podcast are excited to listen to you talk about more about these, these things. So, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, this has been Senior X Radio brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. Hey everyone, this is Justin Rash, host of Senior RX Radio. Wanted to reach out to our listeners quickly about the ASCP Senior Care Forum upcoming in May. With me briefly to talk about this incredible event designed for consultant pharmacists is Frank Grosso. Frank, welcome to Senior RX Radio. Hi, Justin, how are you today? We're uh really excited about this year's forum. There's a lot of great information that's going to be presented. Um, we've got, this is our fourth year of the forum. And uh, when we started four years ago, it was an idea and it's grown to really bring some information, not only, you know, um, clinical, but business-wise. You know, I'm a clinician and how do I grow my business? What's going on in the industry? Um, our lineup of speakers includes representatives from CMS, Dr. Paul McGann, who has presented to our group in the past and is just 
a really dynamic speaker and really understands pharmacy. Um, we've got the Honorable um, Mark Parkinson, former governor and chief executive officer of the American Healthcare Association, um, who will help us understand what's changing in the industry as far as reimbursement, what's impacting nursing centers. And as you just heard, you know, uh, Stephen Littlehale to talk about the data and, and how that's going to help us to really be recognized for the services that we do as pharmacists. So um, it's shaping up to be just a great meeting. And on top of all that, we have the changing of the guard. I hope you'll join us and celebrate as I'm begin the transition of my role to Chad Wirtz, our new CEO and executive director. It's an exciting time and I hope you'll join us to celebrate. Well, Frank, it's going to be an incredible opportunity for everybody. As a past participant in ASCP form, I can tell you it's an incredible experience to, to marry that clinical and business together, whether you're an individual practitioner or part of a larger organization. Everybody finds something um, at the forum, and it's really incredible, and you can come with some really insightful information. And what an incredible lineup we have. Yeah, one of the things that's really exciting this year that I see is the session that we'll have on chronic care management. You know, two different perspectives. Um, Andrea Phillips, a, a nurse who's worked in a hospital setting, engaging pharmacists to work in chronic care management environment. And Amina Abagar, who is um, runs a community pharmacy and engaging in chronic care management with primary care physicians in our community. This is an opportunity for us to grow our businesses in a new area of patient care and also a new revenue source. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing you there, Frank, um, and uh, certainly welcoming Chad as well. So everybody, Senior Rx radio listeners, jump on ASCP.com, find forum, look at the incredible site list. Um, all the incredible speakers are going to be there, and we look forward to seeing everybody at forum. Thank you so much for joining me today, Frank. Okay, look forward to seeing everyone. Thanks for listening to Senior Rx Radio. Be sure to share this podcast with your fellow consultant pharmacists and pharmacy associates to learn more about better outcomes for older adult patients. Join us on the web at ASCP.com.